Hello, and welcome to another episode of the All Angles podcast. The views expressed are those of the speaker and are subject to change at any time. These views are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a recommendation to purchase any security or as an offer of securities or investment advice. No forecast can be guaranteed. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Today, I'm speaking to Mahesh Jayakumar. He's an investment officer and analyst that's working on fixed income and sustainability here at MFS. And it's a really interesting and wide-ranging conversation. We're going to cover topics including the power of curiosity, change and adaptation. We're going to cover things like what's happening at the frontier of some of these big fixed income asset classes like sovereign debt and other asset classes in credit. And one of the things that I really took away from this conversation is that we have to evolve our thinking as to how we apply some of these principles of how we think about sustainability into these other major building blocks of asset classes that are in our allocators' portfolios. Hope you take away something from this conversation too. Remember that you can subscribe to All Angles through any of your listening platforms, including Apple and Spotify. And if you have any questions, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at allangles.mfs.com with your question, and we're happy to address it. Thank you for listening. Mahesh, welcome. It's great to have you here. Um, and I know we're going to talk about a whole wide range of subjects. Um, before we do that, um, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you. Can you go all the way back to the beginning and give us a kind of potted history of how you got here? Uh, that's a good question, Vish. And wow. So let me let me dig, dig deep into the memory banks here. Um, you've heard me say this, that I consider myself a citizen of the world. But the reason I say that is I had the privilege of growing up uh, in India, in the Middle East, to uh, Indian expatriate parents who um, not only exposed me to life in the Middle East, but more importantly, we traveled the world. Mm. And uh, that exposure uh, is at a young age to various cultures, geographies, was just amazing, right? It stays with you. It, it shapes your persona. And in my case, um, living uh, living in India and going to boarding school and and living leading an independent life, yet being connected to my expatriate folks who lived in the Middle East, traveling the world, was just an unbelievable background, because that eventually led me to come to the U.S. Uh, at a very young age for for school for uh, university, and and I have called the U.S. now home for thirty five plus years. Mm. So I I I and I and I'm glad you asked this because I reflect upon this. I, who you are as a human being is often a composite of all your experiences, experiences growing up, the people you've met, the wonderful colleagues you work with. So I'm very thankful. I'm very thankful that my folks allowed me that that opportunity to mm. to start witnessing the world and traveling at a, at a very at a very young age. Fast forward, I I have been extremely fortunate, uh, and I tell this to everyone that I meet, which is when I least expect something, it happens. And the and and it turns out to be an unbelievable experience, because fast forward the joke I tell folks is I went from India to Indiana because I didn't know any better <laughs> I just added two two alphabets at the end of the at the end of the name of the country where I was born. After that I was fortunate enough to move to Florida, uh, and that was another chapter of my life where now I was exposed to Latin American culture. Hmm. So I'm very proud to say that I was exposed to the to Cuban culture, learned Spanish. I still appreciate uh, Latin American and Cuban culture because of my life in South Florida, um, which ho- also happened to take me 
to, to Europe, specifically France. So I lived in France for a couple of years, which means I ended up learning the language there also. It just so happened that the company I used to work for shut shop in Florida and basically said, hey, Mahesh, we don't want to lose you. Would love to have you move to the headquarters. And by the way, it's in the Boston area. Hmm. So 19 years in Boston, but lots of sort of change, adaptability. Is there anything in that initial period before you get to New England and to Boston that you think has sort of shaped your kind of worldview or your ability to do what you do today? You know, like you said, your experiences often are shape kind of who you are. I'm just wondering, is there anything in there that you think of as a somewhat seminal moment as to how you think about the world today, how you approach problems today, you know, any, any, anything in that? I think it's, it's the sense of wonder, mm. right? Because you don't know what you don't know, mm. and you know what you know. Yeah. If I, I am, my wife and I talk about the fact that if I hadn't taken this path in life, and if my folks had continued to stay in India, maybe I wouldn't know anything else, right? Mm. I, would have, I would have thrived and be happy with, with my, my life there, but I wouldn't have had the chance to experience the joy of other cultures, other countries, other nations, other peoples. And that has always, has always stuck with me. Mm. Um, the joy of learning something, knowing about something has continues to fascinate me until today. And what that has done for me is, you know, that that sense of curiosity doesn't end just in the personal mm. uh, life, right? It also continues on to your professional life because as research analysts, you can imagine you don't know everything. You're trying to dig into something and figure out why something is occurring. What is the history behind this? And so that sense of curiosity is something that I'm extremely grateful for. And that curiosity, no doubt, helps you in what you do today. Maybe explain for people what, what you do at MFS and kind of where you fit into the MFS family. I'll just quickly take a step back, Vish, just to finish the story of how I got here. Because I talked to you about moving to New England. What I didn't talk about was I'm a computer scientist by training. So what brought me to New England was a job in software and software engineering. And I've been very privileged to have that that mathematical logical brain of writing code because mm. that that ability carries with you throughout your life in terms of logical problem solving, breaking things down, and then logically connecting the steps. Um, I was just fortunate that after a, a career in in technology, I was able to go to business school in in the Boston area, and in business school I was able to start taking finance classes, accounting classes, really look at other subjects that I'd never been mm. exposed to in depth. I started studying for my CFA the same year I was graduating. <laughs> it was it was crazy. There was a baby on the way. I'm graduating, looking for a job, trying to change careers, and studying for the CFA. But I loved it. I loved every minute of that because I was fortunate enough to join State Street uh, in their management training program. And I'm eternally grateful to them because that's where I started my finance career and asset management career at SSGA. And long story short, I ended up managing fixed income beta, systematic beta portfolios there. As part of that journey, we had launched uh, systematic green bond strategies as early as 2011. I wow. mean, we were ahead of the game in 2011 when we ran, launched commingled systematic green bond strategies, which I had the, 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 the pleasure and the privilege of managing. Mm -hmm. And that continued my ESG journey. That continued my fixed income plus ESG, if you will, to the point where I decided to make 
that my full-time career, mm-hmm. you know, the focus on ESG, one foot in ESG, one foot in fixed income. And that has continued to this day. And I've been fortunate to come to a place like MFS, very different, right? Not a ETF um, beta, beta-like provider, but bottoms up, smaller, fundamental shop. And that's fascinating. And the beauty of being at a place like MFS is it's a very different philosophy to what sustainability means mm. and how to think about sustainability. And in my case, my job is to work with my fellow analysts, my fellow fixed income credit analysts on helping them understand how to better integrate ESG in their investments. These folks, you know, for are the ones that are making buy, sell and hold decisions on the names and the sectors they cover. And my role simply is to help them understand how to think about ESG in that process, how to apply it and how to cut through the noise, if you will, because with all the, the, the data and the information being thrown at you to make sure that we're making, we're making um, investment friendly decisions while incorporating hmm. um, ESG. So that's, that's what I would say is my job. Amazing. Why does what you do now excite you? What kind of moves you today? You know, working, you know, you talked about working with colleagues, and you're clearly somebody that thrives on learning new things and adapting yourself to kind of new environments or new skills or new problems to solve. But what is it that kind of keeps you here and kind of keeps you excited about coming into work every day? I am blessed to work at a place like MFS. And I don't mean that as a cliche. Um, I have worked in enough companies. I'm old enough to tell you that I worked in enough companies in my life. And the culture, the sense of collaboration, purpose, is just unbelievable at a place like MFS. And I knew about this from the outside, right? MFS has a reputation when you're standing outside the gates of MFS that you know what a wonderful firm this is, but you don't know that until you're actually in, in the seat. Um, And so I'll, I'll talk about multiple reasons, but I'll start with that. I'll start with this, with a sense of, the collaboration and the quality of individuals that you're working with and you're collaborating with and talking to and and exchanging ideas on a day-to-day basis. In a world where asset management is increasingly being democratized, fees are going down, passive is on the rise, active is under threat, MFS is one of the last bastions of pure bottoms-up fundamental. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, this world of fundamental active research might be under threat and there might be fee pressure. Mm. But I, I sincerely feel a place like MFS is going to survive and, and come out of the, the passive active wars, if you will, successfully. Mm. And I say that because of the unwavering commitment that MFS has to long-termism, right? Mm. Let's, let's stay the course. Let's not jump ship every few years and change our strategy just because it's somebody else is doing it or it's fashionable, right? Mm. That's not what this firm does. This firm says, hey, this is our bread and butter. This is our ethos. Fundamental, long-term, active security selection. Let's stick to that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, you, you, you apply yourself to a really fascinating intersection, which I want to sort of get into now, which is this very dynamic and emergent field of how we think about sustainability or ESG in specifically across the gamut of fixed income, right? So, um, and you've talked a little bit about philosophy, firm philosophy, maybe just in a nutshell, how would you describe how you approach the problem of how do we best think about sustainability in the context of fixed income asset classes? I'll first start with how to think about sustainability, right? and it's personal, It'll, and it comes from a personal philosophy, which is if you treat other people nicely, 
hopefully you'll get treated the same <laughs> okay. way, yeah. right? And you might say, what is he talking about? Really? Treating other people nicely? And I'll tell you why I say that. Kindness begets kindness, right? So now let's apply that to a company, an enterprise. If this company trashes the community it operates in, pollutes all the lakes and rivers and the earth that it's operating on, treats its employees with like crap, with no respect, mm. no benefits, just, you know, breaks r- rules, pollutes mm. the atmosphere. Is that company, is that company, again, kindness begets kindness. And I'm not saying it's kindness, mm. but if will that company, is that a company that you and me want to work for? Mm. That anybody wants to work for? Is that company going to survive into this, into the long term? No, right? So let's start with that, right? Sustainability, it's, I'm not talking about charity. I'm mm. just saying behavior. What is the right behavior that an enterprise or a government or a public authority should do to foster proper outcomes? Yeah. Right? That's what we're talking about. Yeah. And I started with the word kindness just to tell you about, you know, do no harm. Like, would yeah. you do harm and what that means, right? Yeah. So when I think about sustainability, I think about the fact that it should not even be called ESG. It should just be doing the right, right thing. thing. Yeah. yeah. Right? Let's let's throw the word sustainability out. Let's throw the word ESG out. It's doing the right thing. Doing right by the planet, doing right by society, yeah. and doing right by other stakeholders that you work with yeah. as a entity, regardless of who the entity is. It could be a government, it could be a company. So that's how I think about sustainability. Mm. And I'll connect that to MFS because if you want to do that well, if mm. you want to think about it well, there are no shortcuts. Yeah, You need to dig in to this enterprise, this company, this country, understand why and how these dynamics are playing out. Mm. And that sort of understanding what is the right behavior, understanding the use of digging in fundamental research to, to understand this better, plus in fixed income, you're basically, think about it, you're lending money to these to these enterprises. You're lending money to these countries. So you're a provider of capital. Mm. So ultimately, if you're a provider of capital, you can think about it two ways. You can think about, is this entity that is taking my money behaving in line with my own values, mm. right? That's one way to think about it. And that was what I called, when you and me have discussed this concept of ESG 101, right? Yeah. Values investing, thou shall not invest in sin stocks, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And some investors still continue to do that today. Yeah. That's fine. That's yeah. their prerogative, right? They're basically saying, hey, these are my values. We've also talked about the fact that even if you don't provide capital, somebody else is going to provide capital. So that activity that may not be in alignment with your own values is probably going to continue. You know, but it's, again, but I'm not judging anybody, right? Yeah. So again, but if that's, so that's values-based. The other side of the coin is if I'm providing capital, in fixed income, what is the number one goal of fixed income? Capital preservation, yeah. right? At the end of the day, I'm lending you money and hopefully you pay me back. Yeah. And so now, if you're not behaving well, if you're not behaving in a sustainable manner, how does that affect the likelihood yeah. of capital preservation? Definitely. That's what it comes back to in yeah. fixed income, right? So that hopefully gives you a quick link of how I think about sustainability and fixed yeah, income. Yeah, definitely. And again, you know, I think when we've heard on Prior podcasts in this series, and you and I have definitely talked about, you know, how we 
integrate sustainability factors as part of kind of just good long-term active management but imp- implicit in what you've talked about and you explicitly referenced it earlier is a time horizon that allows for it i think once we extend the time horizon to be good long-term stewards of capital or in al- asset allocators wherever we fit in the uh, value chain then i think it becomes incredibly obvious that we have to think about how a company treats its employees or how it could get fined or how it operates with regulators or the threat of substitution, just like you have to with just about everything that we contend with. Um, but, you know, now, you know, that there is a lot of pervasive short-termism. So, you know, um, one of the things that often gets talked about in the realm of ESG is really centred a lot, I don't know if you agree with this, on the equity domain, certainly over the last sort of few years, Um and now we're sort of broaching the subject of how does this play in fixed income? How do you think about the differences? Obviously, MFS has strategies in equity and fixed income. Um, how do you think about some of the similarities and differences between these two major building blocks asset classes that asset allocators are using today? And what are the nuances that we should be thinking about when it comes to sustainability across that piece? Yeah, no, um I mean, equities as an asset class were the clear forefront and leader in ESG investing. That sort of values investing manifested itself in the world of equities. Mm. I'm not going to buy stock of a company that is involved in a particular sector, right? Mm. So that's the genesis of that and why equities is where this, this phenomenon started. But when you think about fixed income and you talked about time horizons, because that's the very first attribute that's different between the two, right? Think about what it means to be an equity investor. You are providing capital as a shareholder, as an owner of the company, Mm. right? You are at the bottom of the capital structure. Once the company has paid out everybody else, you're getting your EPS, your earnings per share, right? So as long as that company or enterprise continues to survive into perpetuity, you're a shareholder. You're an owner into perpetuity. That's not the case in fixed. Mm. Because when you think about fixed income, and I talked about providing capital, right? When you buy a bond of an issuer, it doesn't matter what kind of issuer, you're buying a bond with a maturity. Mm. It could be a three-year bond, a five-year bond, a 10-year bond. You know, now you have 100-year bonds. Mm. I mean, I'm fascinated by that because it's like, (laughs) I have no clue what the world is going to look like in 100 years. I can take a guess, but... Wow. Like, can you imagine somebody owning a 100-year bond in the portfolio that's probably going to go through multiple managers, you know, looking at that book? But the idea with fixed income, yes, 100 years is a long time. And you could say, isn't that like an equity? Maybe. Yeah, it's like it's going to perpetuity. Mm. But the idea in general with fixed income is you are lending money for a certain amount of time. And after that certain amount of time, you're getting back your capital. That is, your capital is preserved and returned to you. That's the big difference. So if you have a risk, any risk, I'm not saying ESG risk, let's talk about any risk. If that risk, if the probability of that risk playing out within the time period of your lending, if it doesn't happen, then you know that that risk is not going to play out and you're, you are, you're, in, you're safe in terms of your, your capital being returned to you. If not, how does that risk including ESG risk, affect that enterprise and its ability to pay you back, right? Mm. That's what, that's how we think about it in fixed income in terms of ESG factors versus an equity investor, dare I say, 
has a much higher risk appetite to begin with yeah. and already knows that when I am buying equities, the amount of risk you're bearing and yeah. the amount of volatility that you're going to possibly encounter is much higher, much higher. than fixed yeah. income, right? Yeah. It's it's a different world of expectations, yeah. uh, return and risk expectations, according to me. And ESG is just another risk factor that that affects yeah. that, that thinking. Uh, so that, I would say, is, is one of the big differences. So time horizon. Time horizon. Right? Yeah. The second one, I would say, is going back to this concept of being an owner, right? If you are a stockholder or an owner, that comes with certain privileges. Mm. And what are those privileges? The ability to basically vote on an annual basis at a public company's meeting and say, I don't like this management team or yeah. I like this management team. I like the board or I don't like the board. I want the company to do this. You have the right as mm. a shareholder, right? You don't have that right as a bondholder. You're a creditor, mm. right? At the end of the day, you're you're lending money to the issuer and you're hoping to get paid back. And there's a concept of covenants, yes. Mm. Covenants protect us as, as creditors and bondholders on ensuring the company behaves mm. and continues to behave the right way during the amount of the time period that I mentioned that we've lent funds. But we can't. We technically don't have any legal mechanisms mm. like our equity counterparts to influence management. Yeah. Right? But but, 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 that doesn't mean, that does not mean we don't have a say. Yeah. Right? This concept of, hey, fixed income investors have no power. Yes, we have no legal authority yeah. and power. But that doesn't mean that a company is not going to listen to you and have a conversation with you as a bond investor on what your views might be on what yeah. the company is doing and not going. Why do you ask? Because think about it. Bond investors, a company, depends on a bond investors again and again, again and again. And again. Yeah. That's the whole point. You are yeah. you are providing capital yeah. on a short-term to intermediate to long-term basis repeatedly because companies pay down debt, go back and raise debt. Pay down debt, go mm. back and raise debt. Unlike equities. A company might not issue equities at all, mm. whereas they're issuing bonds again and again and again. So if I don't believe you're doing the right thing, Am I going to lend money Keep to you lending. as a bond investor the second time around? No. Yeah. So there is a mechanism to not influence, I don't want to use that word, but to provide feedback yeah. to a company's management team, even if you don't have formal mechanisms like proxy voting, like shareholder resolutions, et cetera, et cetera. So that's another big difference between yeah. fixed and equities. You have you have access to management. And, and again, you know, working hopefully in a place where you can sit side by side with your kind of equity colleagues and, and have that access. But one one thing you've mentioned, this idea of values, uh, and, and it gets into the realm of exclusions. One thing I'd, I'd lay out on the table, something I've been thinking about quite a bit. So correct me where my thinking goes wrong. So um, historically, we've had, you know, the world of ESG began as really SRI, and it was sort of religious institutions, faith based institutions that sort of imposed negative screens, what we would call today or exclusionary lists on sections of the economy that they or, or certain sectors or businesses or industries that they didn't like and again i'm with you i have full respect for that people should protect there are some institutions that need to kind of reflect their values in the way that they invest um and and now we uh, sort of we've inherited that and you know you roll it forward and because of the kind of structural growth of passive I've, I've, my feeling is we and the ESG in, industry is still in its infancy and as it matures I think it will start to get more nuanced and more sophisticated around some of these issues so I think 
we currently use words like divestment or exclusion sort of somewhat synonymously. And to me, they're very different things. And I think there are sort of actually sort of three categories that people should be thinking about. One is exclusion, which sort of, sort of says ex ante, before I've done any analysis, before I've done anything, I've just decided I don't like X. I don't like tobacco stocks or alcohol stocks or whatever whatever it might mm. be that, that's offending your value system. Mm-hmm. And that's, I'm not doing any analysis. I'm not looking at those companies. Those are just out of my Correct. investable universe. Correct. Then you've got a second category, which to me is avoidance, right? Which is, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to, to your point, there's no shortcuts. I'm going to roll up my sleeves. I'm going to try and understand this business. And for a variety of fundamental factors, which could include sustainability, I'm going to decide not to invest in some of those things. And you can do that in the equity world or the fixed income world. And as an active investor, you could argue that we spend more of our time deciding what not to invest in than than attempting to invest in something. And then once you have invested, that's when divestment becomes an option. So the thesis could be fulfilled or broken for a number of reasons, which would drive a divestment for a firm like uh, for a firm like ours or for any active investor. And then once you've also chosen to own it, you've got stewardship and active ownership, which Mm -hmm. you've talked about here, which is access. And I actually think that Again, because there's another dynamic at play which sometimes goes a little bit under the radar, which is people think that buying equities in a company is giving that company direct capital, right? Which, for the most part, is a kind of misnomer. You know, most equities operate on public exchanges, and so me selling means that there's another buyer in the open exchange. So if I sell my shares of ExxonMobil and you happen to buy them off that exchange, ExxonMobil doesn't know or particularly care that, that that has happened. But um, all that's happened is I've transferred that ownership to uh, another individual. Whereas with fixed income, like you're saying, you're essentially lending fresh debt, fresh capital to that business, often with covenants and contractual obligations applied of how they're going to spend some of that capital. Again, have to necessarily be the case, and it's a complex field. So again, there there are some nuances there that to me speak to why um, avoidance could actually be quite a powerful tool in the fixed income world because by again to your point of understanding the business compounding that that understanding and then being able to interact and engage with management teams before they syndicate their loans or before they come to the market it's actually a very powerful position that yep. fixed income investors yep. have been in and again maybe a year ago i didn't really appreciate the strength of that position as much yeah. is that no, fair you're it, it's you're absolutely right i just want to also point out that you can trade debt yes. in the secondary market. Yes. So just like you, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned the Exxon example of, you know, hey, you're buying your, your tr- that share, that stock is changing hands and bonds can also, also change course, hands in the course. secondary market. The big difference I would say is bonds are much more illiquid. Yes. You cannot necessarily find a buyer every single every time, time you want to sell a particular bond. Whereas I think stocks you can in, in, in all earnestness. So I think that's the big issue is that bonds in general are have a have what they call an illiquidity premium, right? It's not as liquid as, as yeah. an asset class. But going back to your observation, you are correct. Mm-hmm. You are correct. This concept of ex ante um, avoidance, if you will, is something that is being practiced in fixed income. In mm-hmm. fact, when we talk about the evolution of ESG and developing ESG away from equities towards other asset classes, corporate fixed income, which mm-hmm. is, hey, this is a company that issues stocks and, and equities, and here's the same company that mm-hmm. also issues debt in the capital structure, right? So if you're not, if you're going to avoid the stock of a particular company because of your sustainability values, 
why would you buy the debt? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you would also avoid that debt. So that's that that concept of avoidance, and I, I love the way you laid it out in terms of the five, the five pillars or themes or views, yeah. if you want to call it that, the way you you laid them out. That that very first pillar of avoidance can very well be practiced in fixed income. Mm. Absolutely, and you can dare I say you can practice it without even going down the divestment path. Yeah, right? exactly. Because of going back to what I told you earlier, yeah. you're not a perpetual owner. Mm -hmm. You might have held on to a piece of paper, a bond, that matured at some point and left your portfolio, yeah. right? Without you necessarily making an active decision on it. But then when they're coming back to the market again, yeah. what is what is your stance now on that particular sector or or company? Yeah. So I, I hear you. I hear you. That's 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 a style of implementation can be that can be done both in fixed and in and equity. Yeah. yeah, and maybe just that there's some subtlety in terms of the emphasis that you could you could apply that. The one of the things that I know that you're very focused on now, and you and I speak about a lot, is um, one of the other big differences. Obviously, is that fixed income isn't as maybe a homogenous asset class as equity might be. That you've got different sub asset classes within there, and so. You know, in the in the interest, you know, I'd love just to maybe scratch the surface a little bit. We won't get time to kind of go in full depth today. Maybe we'll have you back to talk about the full depth of the work that you're doing. But if you could break down for us, where is sustainability in your view across the marketplace today in the fields of things like the sovereign market or the municipal bond market or the corporate credit market that you've just referenced? Um, where would you say that they are on the on the journey? What are some of the kind of hurdles, obstacles that, that yeah. investors like like you are, are facing? Uh, what are some of the things that the industry is contending with on that? Maybe we start with sovereigns, if that's okay. Where, where, are, where are we on sovereigns yeah. and no, sustainability? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll step back and quickly allude to what you just pointed out, which is the fixed income asset class itself is not uniform. Mm. It's not homogenous. You have different kinds of bonds being issued by different types of um, issuers. Countries can issue sovereign bonds in their own currency, mm. and that's typically what you call local currency bonds, versus issuing in in other currencies outside of their local currency in typically uh, G7 currencies, right? The U United States dollar, the British pound, the Japanese yen, et cetera. And those are called hard currency Sovereign bonds, right? So that's so you already have that distinction between uh, uh, in, in sovereign bond space itself. You have sub-sovereigns, states, uh, governments, local governments, cities that have to again raise funding for for operating their their cities or states, and so that sub-sovereign debt. And the biggest sub-sovereign debt globally is the U.S. municipal mm -hmm. bond market, and then. The big, one of the biggest asset classes, of course, is uh, sovereign bonds is by far the biggest asset uh, sub-asset class within fixed income. Uh, but the, the second biggest after that is is uh, corporate bonds. Going back to your question of where are we? Where is where are each of these sub-asset mm. classes? Right. I would say that the corporate the ability to think about ESG factors and execute and implement ESG factors is probably the greatest in corporate credit space right. simply because it mirrors many of the same tools and methodologies and frameworks that our equity counterparts might yeah. might utilize right so and and that's uh, not all the time but for the most part hmm. right I'm glad you talked about sovereigns because that I I would say that's the second um, sub asset class or, or or partition within fixed income 
where ESG is, uh, the implementation and the ability to implement ESG is now gradually increasing. And it started out with these concept of thematic bonds, right? So countries would issue green bonds and the country would say, hey, I, as a sovereign, I'm issuing this green bond or a social bond to take this monies and use it towards projects that mm -hmm. are going to help my country or my citizens in a certain way, right? In one case, I might be cleaning up a uh, uh, cleaning up an, uh, a brownfield zone with this funds, or I might be pro providing um, renewable energy with these funds, or I might be building a hospital or providing and building a school, etc. So that was the very first, I would say, taste of sovereign ESG investing for a lot of investors, which is, hey, I am I know I'm providing capital to this mm. country to do certain things. Fast forward, the same concept of understanding what we call ESG materiality, which is what is the most important or what are some of the most important ESG factors from a risk and return perspective that I need to think about when, when understanding a corporation, for example, and corporate credit. That same concept you can also apply to sovereigns, mm. right? And by the way, the pillars are the same, right? Let, let me not, let, let me, I want to reemphasize that the environmental pillar, the social pillar, the governance pillar, those pillars are the same across these different parts of fixed income. But the factors underlying each of those pillars might not might be the be same, different. right? Mm -hmm. So when you think about governance for a company, you're thinking about the management team, mm -hmm. the board. When you think about governance for a country, you're thinking about political stability, the right. administration in power. The strength, the, of the strength of institutions, yeah. the rule of law, regulation, et cetera. So it's governance, it's the G pillar in both ways, but they're implemented and manifested differently. So you're thinking about the strengthening of these factors or erosion of these factors in different ways mm. and, and applying that to your own risk framework to say, hey, what do I think is going to happen to the sovereign? So that concept of applying ESG factor materiality to the process of evaluating risk is now firmly embedded also in sovereigns, just like it was, I would say, started out in the world of corporate credit. Mm. And the reason is simple, because to do this effectively, you need data. You need to understand behavior. You need to understand what is happening. And without data, you cannot make that, mm. that, that you may not be able to make that decision correctly. And so because disclosure was not as forthcoming from an ESG perspective on the sovereign side, compared to corporates, it was slower to, to take hold. But now countries understand, right? Countries themselves understand that they need to uh, behave in a much sustainable, much more sustainable manner. Think about what the SDGs are, right? For those of you who don't know, the UN Sustainable Development Goals that all the major countries of the world have, have signed on to, the, 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 the goal of the SDGs is very simple. It's sustainable development. How mm. can we make this world a better place with less poverty, with a better environment, and manage the resources that we have, right? Mm. That's what the UN SDGs are, are alluding to with the 17 different principles. And the idea is when a country signs on to that, it's saying, I as a country want to do right by mm. my citizens. Mm. I want to do right by the environment, right? So, you know, I, it's it's a fancy jargon for, again, going back to this concept of understanding and doing right by right. your stakeholders. So that ability to now understand and get information on ESG for a sovereign has markedly improved, mm. right? And that's why I would say that's where we are with, uh, with sovereigns. And even if that information was not available, you have NGOs and initiatives 
that focus on influencing sovereigns and saying, hey, by the way, we need this information from you. And I'm pleased to tell you that MFS is part of one such initiative uh, known as the ASCOR, A-S-C-O-R, Assessing Sovereign Climate-Related Opportunities and Risks. This initiative, which is uh, a wonderful initiative that has been spearheaded by the PRI, um, IIGC, Ceres, many other NGOs, and has a coalition of asset managers, including MFS, at the table, as well as is being worked on and helped and implemented by the London School of Economics. Um, the, the goal of this initiative is climate-related disclosures from sovereigns. Hmm. If climate risks are as important as they are, and, uh, and we consider them one of the, one of the most um, pivotal risks material that we're facing, risks. material risks yeah. that we're facing, how can we get better disclosure from sovereigns on how are they, how are, A, how are they exposed to these climate hmm. risks, and B, how are they managing these mm. climate risks, right? So the goal of this initiative is precisely to do that, which is to encourage sovereigns to say, these, this is how investors can use a climate risk assessment framework when understanding this for sovereigns. These are the metrics, these are the data points that we'd be looking for, and how can sovereigns help with that? And once you have disclosure, how are you remedi- remedying that, mm. remediating that risk, right? So that's what this is, um, this is focused on. And the reason ASCOR came about is because this same sort of initiative started out again in corporates, Mm. right? The Transition Pathway Initiative, the TPI, which both of us are familiar with, that's exactly what TPI did. TPI said, hey, company, corporate XYZ, how are you exposed to climate risk and how are you managing it? And the idea was, let's do TPI for sovereigns. And that's precisely the goal of of the ASCOR project. And, And that's the right thing to do. MFS as an asset manager has a seat at the table and should contribute yes. to the yes. development of standards and frameworks. And, and we do that every single day, as you Particularly know. given the importance to, I mean, not only just, I mean, it's exciting and it's fascinating to see what, the, what that group will come up with. And I know there's some plans as we head into sort of the end of 2022 and early 23 in terms of some of those metrics and frameworks that will be disclosed. Um, but it also plays, sovereigns play such an important role in client portfolios or asset allocators portfolios either for liability matching or risk management or as a ballast to other growth assets but so it's funny because in in my capacity as I kind of interact with clients all around the world um, and those are sort of asset allocators asset owners um, I think they are everyone's attention is slowly pivoting to other very large segments of their portfolio which is typically the fixed income Kind of uh, the sovereigns or the the, the high quality uh, credit component parts, and saying, "Hey, I've, I've been very focused on sustainability or ESG in my equity or my growth assets. I should be also focused on the you know the forty percent or fifty or sometimes eighty yeah. percent of my assets that are right. actually in in this. And 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 that's where we're becoming a little bit unstuck, I think, in the industry. And something like uh, Ascor and and the work of the other NGOs that you mentioned is really exciting to think about how we're going to evolve that thinking um, o- over time." Are there other thematic sort of issues that you're sort of looking at today? Any Anything that's sort of top of mind to you that in your seat as you kind of look across the landscape of both sustainability and fixed income? Investors are now paying attention more to what I would say the S pillar and the E pillar, mm. right? If you think about the S pillar, um, you talk, we talk about culture, right? I talked about mm. MFS culture. How do you measure that wish? How, how do I express culture to you? I cannot mm. quantitatively tell you what culture looks like. I, we can try to poke 
And in Prague, what, what culture might mean? Culture might mean diversity. Oh, yeah. if you're more diverse, if you have uh, a, a very diverse uh, workforce, the culture is more fostering mm. collaborative. Yes, you can make that deduction and you can deduce that. But again, uh, when you think about the social pillar, typically we have focused on safety metrics, you know, health metrics, et cetera. But increasingly, we're now focusing on culture, diversity. You know, DEI has become mm. a, a very big theme that we're all thinking about. And by the way, there's no good data. There is some diversity data that mm. companies are now disclosing. But we have to do more work on, more work on what does that mean? Mm. Are you succeeding just because you're diverse? Are other policies within the firm impeding that in spite of you being diverse? These are things that we're slowly discovering. So that's this this S-pillar and diversity and culture theme under the S-pillar is something that we're all working on as ESG investors, regardless of whether you're a fixed income investor or an equity investor, mm. right? We're thinking mm. about it as a theme and then we can tease that out and say, what does that, what mean, does that mean for, for fixed income? Yeah. I would say climate risk is the number one E-pillar item mm. that we're all thinking about. And, 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 and climate risk, uh, the climate risk factor is one of those things where it's not as clean and boxed in as many other ESG factors. It has so many other linkages mm. to sovereigns in terms of whether a sovereign, what kind of um, uh, physical risk a sovereign might be exposed to. Yeah. What happens to a, a company's uh, demand, a, a company's goods, what happens to a demand for company's mm. goods in a warming planet? So climate is one of those things that atta attacks other subsectors, other parts of fixed income. And, and so I am not surprised, and, and I think we're doing the right thing, which is we're attacking this and understanding this uh, in a very deep fashion, like we are at MFS, right? We're thinking about how to think about this risk. How is the marketplace thinking about this risk? How are other stakeholders thinking about this risk? I would say that that theme, that factor under the E theme, or that theme under the E pillar is something that we're, we're thinking about a lot. The other aspect that is now coming up is, is decarbonization, especially in the context of the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Mm. We now have experienced um, disturbances in the mm. theme and the thinking that we, we didn't have before. And so time will tell what happens. What does it mean? So our coal assets now, is there a new lease of, li lease of life on coal assets, which I would say there is mm. because of the energy crisis globally. Um, natural gas, the pure environmentalists have always said natural gas is a fossil fuel, right? This this concept of nat gas being a bridge fuel is fallacy, right? Yep. I disagree with that because you have to be very realistic hmm. in terms of balancing energy hmm. needs, energy security, and development. I do think that the notion of the transition and how important a transition is going to be from one to the other has started to kind of really permeate people's thinking now. Like before it was, I want to move to the green economy, I want to green my portfolio, essentially... Um, and if I greed my portfolio by some form of magic, that will kind of translate into sort of greening the, the, the economy. And now we recognize that it's sort of the other way around, that actually, you know, this is going to take time. There are going to be missteps. We're likely, globally, um, likely to go down cul-de-sacs that um, may not pan out. There's new technologies that will come online and will need to help us. There were trade-offs that will have to be made. Exactly. I have a question for you, sort of pivoting out to a little bit more about you. What is the book that you've read or gifted the most to other people? What's the book that sort of moved your thinking? What should I be writing down as on my next uh, book on my reading list? I have, I've had, I've, I've read so many books, so many authors, you know, where to begin. 
I'll go back to my childhood. I'll go back to where you started this conversation. Uh, there was an Indian-British author by the name of Ruskin Bond, right? Now, what was interesting about Ruskin Bond was he, this was an Anglo-Indian who had, who was of English heritage, who had was born in India, of mixed of mixed parentage, and so he uh, he had a wonderful way of writing short stories, especially in the hill stations and the hill country of the north of India wow. where he lived. There could be humor, there could be horror. So. Um, I still have a fondness for Ruskin Bond um, that I today. The other person that I, I encourage people to read is a gentleman by the name of R.K. Narayan, right? R.K. Narayan was, a, um, was an Indian author who wrote about life in India, and especially in southern India, and the stories of, of his main character was a kid named Swami, and and the misadventures, if you will, that Swami got into, um, trying to do the right thing, you know, he was like the local Dennis the Menace, if you right. will. And and his stories had a lot of heart. As an Indian child growing up, you could see in Swami the reflections of you getting into trouble and you trying to fix things behind your parents' back when you knew it was you had gotten into trouble. So I encourage people to read uh, R.K. Narayan and, uh, and, and, the Advent, and Ruskin Bond, Bond, The Adventures of Swami. That's perfect. I'm going to add those to the list. Before we close out, what's the one thing you would want our listeners to take away? I'm going to go back to this concept of being curious. Rish, I want everybody to be curious. Be uncomfortably curious. Even if it's uncomfortable, dig, learn, understand. There's a lot of problems on planet Earth right now, be it political, be it economic, be it perceptions. There's a lot of problems. And when I feel uncomfortable about that problem or that topic, there's parts of me that wants to run away and hide that web page or hide that article and not want to read it. And I precisely try not to do that. Even if I have to squirm, I am curious. Mm. I want to learn. I want to be uncomfortable and get a new perspective. So. Please never, ever, ever, ever stop being curious because that's the only thing that, that you have. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. You've certainly added fuel to the fire for me and, and lit a spark. So thank you. And I'm sure you have for many of the listeners. So I really appreciate your time, Mahesh, uh, and your insight and your wisdom on many, many topics. I'm sure we'll have you back again. Once maybe I've read one of these um, one of these books that you recommended. We can talk thank about you for hosting involved. me, Vish. Thank you for hosting me and being a generous host. And, and really, I mean, you've given me a chance to talk about things that I've not even thought about in a, while, in a long time. So thank you for that. Great. Thank you so much.